0: We have the distinct pleasure of um, having a conversation today with Lisa Moore. Lisa is the Executive Vice President and Chief People Officer at Yahoo, a household name on, I think, planet Earth. Uh, Lisa, it's so good to be with you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Well, Lisa, let's just jump right into it. I think your life at Yahoo started in 2014, almost 10 years ago when you started at AOL, and then I think a few years later, AOL's parent company, Yahoo, or excuse me, um, uh, yes, parent company, Uh, Verizon. Excuse me. Let me get my notes right here. Uh, Verizon purchased uh, Yahoo, uh, and it allowed you the opportunity uh, with your family to make the jump across the pond uh, to New York. Can you tell us a little bit about this experience, Um, AOL and then Yahoo and kind of the merging of cultures within these organizations? It sounds like just a wonderful adventure.
1: That is a great summary for it, actually. A, a wonderful adventure, an adventure of chapters. Uh, you know, the roller coaster goes up and down and back up again. And yeah, as you, as you indicated there, Spencer, along the way, with a family move and 10 years of, you know, my kids growing up really as well while I've been in this company, um, there's been a lot that's been woven together, personal and professional. Um, when I joined AOL, actually, in London in November 2014, it wasn't even owned by Verizon yet. So the following year was the was the purchase by Verizon, which was a great hoopla. I remember the C-suite coming over and they were so excited. They're a telecoms company, obviously a giant in that market. And we were the media add-on. So that was going to be a combination of content and 5G that they were driving. and Everybody got super excited about that. And then, yeah, the next year they bought Yahoo. And so the first big, big job, I would say, was for me to be involved from an HR standpoint in the pre-merger, pre-integration, into integration piece, that exercise, which was huge, as you can imagine. Um, and again, to highlight in your question, how was that from a cultural perspective, um to say fascinating is understating it, right? You might think these two companies look similar. They both have a heavy tech presence or a heavy tech component in the population with a lot of engineers on both sides. History, you know, you've been at the top of the game, maybe not so much anymore, like how do we feel about that? Um, These companies were super different though, super different in the way that they identified um, as, with themselves in the marketplace, I would describe AOL more of an underdog, Um, you know, certainly a a kind of gritty resilience in the culture on that side. Yahoo probably a bit more polished, certainly a bit more structured. Um, And when it came to then, from an HR perspective, looking at the talent piece, it was a really in-depth and intimate exercise we had to go through because both companies were great both companies had a lot of success. Both companies had a lot of strong talent, but at the end of the day, for many of the business units that we were creating, there was now one box where there were two candidates. And so from a cultural perspective, even just communicating to the broader organization about how that was gonna work was immensely uh, critical, even before we'd started making any of those moves. So just to say, Yes, it was incredibly complicated. Yes, it was fascinating. It was heavy emotional work on both sides, which I think is often underrated in a transaction like this, the personal uh, investment that everybody's making, frankly, to try to get the best team on the other side for the purpose of the company that we're building, but recognizing that that does come with some difficult decisions and ultimately transitioning out the company for what was in the end hundreds of people so um yeah a massive learning journey i would say on multiple fronts i
0: i i love the adventure thank you so much lisa for kind of providing a, a, a backdrop i i think there's so many areas where we can go um i think in many large organizations uh, especially with mergers and acquisitions uh there's a tendency to underestimate the length of time it takes for culture to, um, for everyone to to acclimate uh, to the new culture. So I think this would have been in in 2017, uh, 2018. Where does the organization stand today? And as you look back, uh, what are some of your biggest learnings? What are some learnings that you might be able to share with some of your uh, you know, people and talent uh, colleagues who are experiencing something similar.
1: Yeah, that is a great question and uh, so let me take the first part or a two-part question. Let me take the yeah. first part first. Where is the company today? Well, of course, now, neither AOL nor Yahoo, which was fused together, originally called Oath, and then re- rebranded, if you will, Verizon Media. Then in 2021, so coming up for two years ago, Verizon sold that company to um, a private equity firm. So where is the company today? It is no longer owned by Verizon. We were sold to the private equity company, Apollo. And um, we are probably still, um, I would say, made up of two-thirds, probably two-thirds former Yahoo and a third blended AOL and new new hires. Or so possibly it's closer to a third, a third, a third these days. Um, but it's still very present and people do talk still about where it came from, um, whether it was a former, one of the legacy former companies or whether you're a new hire or indeed another acquisition that we've done along the way. But it's done today in a completely different way than it was back then. Back then, it was quite combative. Again, coming out of this pre-integration planning work, we had two names for every box. We also had two technology platforms for every ultimately, one platform that was going to be chosen to be part of the new infrastructure for the newly uh, created company. So I would say lots of fiefdoms, lots of politics, inevitable, right? This is a massive exercise, which ultimately is going to see some people in and some people out. So there's my first learning, I would say, is during that pre-integration planning, you have to try to be super objective about the choices that you're making, which is really hard. So from an HR perspective and from a leader perspective, you've really got to get down to the data and down to what is going to be most successful going forward. Uh, If it's a role, if you're choosing somebody um, into that role, you're selecting talent into that role, you've got to be super objective about the experience they're going to bring into that role, which is is really hard. Um, The second thing I would say, and it goes more to your second part of the question, Within a year of Oath being created, so that's the original AOL Yahoo merger, the executive leadership at the time became impatient with people talking about the past. And so they more or less declared, you weren't allowed to talk about it. They didn't exactly say that in a town hall, but that was understood. Let's stop looking backwards, let's stop talking about the past. And so that what they did there though, was ultimately send a signal that that wasn't really valued. And, and we just, everybody had to just think forward and not take pride in what had happened before. Yahoo has a very famous saying that they bleed purple, you know, and so do their customers, customers say that too. That was, it was not okay to say that for a period of time because it was again, hinting at this, uh, two party situation. Actually, the, the blending of the two was was the key to success, right? So not alienating, not showing frustration with people that they were attached to things from the past. It was really trying to to filter out what is critical from from any perspective, frankly, from even things like the intranet, right? People were attached to the intranet at Yahoo in a way I had never seen before, but it didn't get carried across. For some reason, there was a new platform. We decided to take the new... But that we had underestimated how much uh, a constant environment and some of the things that people really were attached to could play a part in a successful go forward state and and therefore kind of create that culture going forward so the second learning i would say is try to understand what are those things that seem like an easy change or something that you could just do, but actually people are attached to. They're kind of fused with in some ways, and that you can afford to take some of those things forward into the future for the better of all uh, without losing, and then you don't lose everything that has been built up over the last decades.
0: Uh, Absolutely fascinating. So Lisa, you've mentioned a few words, integration, blending, merging, and you've been talking about that at a corporate level but in my mind too i think one of the things that this worldwide pandemic has done is that it has allowed us to view people as three-dimensional and that we now have a window into their lives in fact you're coming to us from the south of france i mean this is absolutely wonderful and for the last two years we've been able to realize i think as a society that you know we are more than just our our work selves And so in my mind, I'm seeing you, your husband at the time, your two teenage children and dog, making the transition to uh, the U.S. So in terms of, like, blending and merging and integration, how was that for you uh, and your family?
1: I would say, again, looking back now, one of my learnings for anybody considering a move internationally, in in its globality, I would say... Do it. Do it. It's a great experience. My learning is everybody's having a different experience. Everybody in the family is having a drastically different experience based on what might seem like obvious factors, right? What age are you? Are you working or not? Have you been to this place before? Do you speak the language? <laughs> um, it isn't the first time my husband and I have lived. Abroad. We actually already lived in Japan for two years and prior to that when I was studying I had also lived abroad so it wasn't altogether unfamiliar in fact in many ways New York is super familiar to English people um, but at the time that we moved we had a 13 year old and 11 year old and uprooting the younger one particularly from England uh, was quite traumatic for him and you can think at the time that you know this is a really bad idea I believe that oftentimes assignments as such fail because of some of these you know heart-wrenching things that can't be fixed in the new, the new locale, um, I would just say, not, don't panic. It will get better time. Time is a great healer on so many fronts, including mergers and integration and cultural (laughs) blending. Um, but it does take a little while for you to get into that new routine, whatever that looks like for you. I was fortunate in that I was working for the same company that I had been working for in London. So for me, the transition was actually minimal. I saw the same people that I worked with when I came on business trips, I went to the same office, et cetera. So my, for me to consider that I was going through an upheaval would not have been appropriate. It was kind of easy for me, but my younger son um, really had a tough time and, and it's okay to just stop and pause and also admit that it's hard, you know, it's hard and just don't worry, it will get better. And that is pretty heartbreaking when your kids are homesick for somewhere else.
0: Well, Jess, any questions, thoughts on your end?
2: Well, I didn't know the conversation was going to go this way. I have like a whole bunch of questions. Um, you know, <laughs> it's funny. I I started out in mergers and acquisitions like 20 years ago at, at City, but I don't feel like I really um, had any kind of a sense for for just how drastic the cultural changes are until starting our leadership company, Influential Leaders. Uh, like we've got this one client, um, started with them like eight years ago. They were stock building supply. Then they merged with BMC, and now they're an 18 billion dollar company called Builders First Source. And like our our client there, this division president, who like I've lived these I've lived these integrations with them, and like every time they go through new merger, they bring us back in, and we have this conversation about like, hey, what's this going to be like? Because they they do things like um, drive forklifts around with lumber for builders, right? And it's like okay. In one of your companies, it's a firing offense to not have a seatbelt mm-hmm. on. In the other one of your companies, there's like, everybody expects you to be an adult, you make your own decision. So which is it, you know? And, and just like, instead of like pretending that you've now been blessed, a, a new family, a new work family, and everything's going to be fine, it's like, let's get it out in the open, let's have conversations, let's write. And I know it's just like the basics of integration work. But for me, mm-hmm. it, it's been so interesting to then teach like, um we have, we have like eight week classes teaching them how to be a coach to their staff for managers right but we'll get mixes of like people from this company feel from this company and so like as you do this you know for eight years you really get the like well i am it's like it's like genealogy well i'm from this company from this company from this company well i'm from this company from the right and like there yeah. are drastic approaches i mean completely different sales systems completely different computer systems and it is like I guess I like have an appreciation for what you're talking about that I I (laughs) never did before this client uh, on a level I never understood. And so I guess my question for you is when it comes to this cultural integration. So, you know, I I think so often I'm interviewing these founders who have grown from like a dozen people in the garage. Now they're over a billion dollars or something. And they're they're really seriously thinking about M&A for the first time and they have a balance sheet to be able to do some acquisitions. And in my um, guess, drastically underestimating the work of cultural integration. Um, if you had advice for, for that CEO who's like, hey, you know, they're coming up, you know, their investment bankers have supplied them with endless reasons that they should do this merger, <laughs> not to mention all their huge amount of fees, right? Um, <laughs> when you think about pre-work, when you think about like helping things go right, um, planning for a merger, planning for an integration, what are some of your top items culturally?
1: Yeah, when I first came into the this um, area of work, I also recall several times where, you know, you arrive at the conversation generally quite late into the day as an HR professional. If you're really just brought in because this is happening and now you need to get everybody to work day and, you know, try and fit them in the job structure and, Here's what we're going to pay them. And there's not a lot of room for maneuver at that point. But you can already see how the movie is going to play out because what you do know is things do not stay, this might be a spoiler alert, things do not stay confidential ever. People talk and they talk about benefits and conditions and they talk about what they get paid and they talk about what is culturally accepted or not. And if you try to somehow do this under the radar, you are going to be exposed, right? So my advice is always to try to be like as upfront as you can about things that could be challenging. In my world, you don't really need to focus on the stuff that's going to go well, because that's just going to go well. I'm always thinking, what's going to happen when this comes out? Like what's going to happen when this becomes public? And we have a very active employee population in Slack where there is nowhere to hide, right? And we have a very open culture that welcomes feedback and welcomes discussion, especially on thorny topics, because if you're not discussing it with us, you're for sure discussing it with other people and we need to know so we can fix it or dispel whatever it is that's untrue. And so, and and this, by the way, isn't just a philosophy around cultural integration. This is just a philosophy, period. The more you can try to be upfront and open, which doesn't mean always being 100% transparent, but being open about what you can be open about um, and having, you know, thereby in generating or engendering a, a spirit of, I, from an employee base perspective i believe they are telling me everything they can at this point in time that that's really my advice is go as far as you can be as transparent as you can be doesn't mean totally open on every topic but i'll give you one example aol bought a company uh a ad tech platform company and the company had free food every day they were a startup and it was manageable cost wise they were based in the bay area i was working in london The team in London had food delivered to their office every day. AOL did not. When the team moved into the AOL office, food was delivered to that team and that team only. And when they'd finished eating, informally they said to people sitting around them, Oh, we're done now. If you want to come and grab a slice of pizza, you can. Or if you want to come and take the rest of the pie you can, right? This is a newly acquired company with an established AOL employee base. How do you think that went from a cultural integration perspective? Not only did we not like them, we didn't like the technology, we weren't prepared to talk about that positively on, you know, with friends and customers. That just went right to the heart of the problem. Whereas we've got to have an upfront conversation with that company being acquired to either say, listen, we need, because you have food, we're either gonna keep food for the rest of the company, probably unlikely, cause that's, you're a tiny fish and we're a big group, or we aren't gonna be able to support food going forward. So here's the plan, right? We're gonna have to somehow get everybody to a position of being treated to a degree, certainly more equally than you getting your food delivered every day. But in a, in a deal situation, That is not a conversation, partly because it's so minutiae, right? But it's actually massive when you think about it from a cultural perspective. At some point, we are going to have to have conversations about things that you do and whether or not that can be scaled and, or whether it's okay to have specific practices for specific groups. But in my experience, the deal team don't get down to that level of detail. And then by the time it comes through to being discussed, Everybody's wedded to the idea that they're keeping it. And we have now got a cultural issue to deal with.
2: <laughs> uh, how, many, how many total staff right now at Yahoo? Just over
1: 7,500.
2: Okay. So what's funny is I, I actually, as you're talking, and I want you to tell me if you see it differently, it feels like such an empathy problem of like top executives making a lot of money not thinking what it's like for uh, people with m- more moderate salaries the difference of getting fed every day or not right and um like you said like that <laughs> that thing that you said where we also weren't interested in their technology because <laughs> they got food delivered and they who we got their scraps like there's such a drastic underestimating of like people do business with people they like including in their own company right and <laughs> and so um, I'm I'm thinking about this as like a kind of like a, you know, ounce of prevention or pound of cure kind of situation. Um, and, you know, there's a really famous KPMG study that said uh, 88% at the time of this study, 88% of acquisitions were worth less than the company paid for them. And I, I think what you're talking to expresses so much of that reason right? Of this lack of getting down to the, you know, getting the water to the end of the row of like, what is it like for each individual? What that's good? What is that going to feel like at work? And anybody who doesn't think feelings affect work product, right? Or like, you know, Spencer's always, um, you know, Spencer's big thing. He works with Apple and Amazon, all these people like, hey, what, what um, is your employment benefit that you get? Like how much school will the company pay for? Well, you can, can you imagine being in the middle of a some program with Spencer at WGU and all of a sudden the acquirer says, oh yeah, we don't pay for that anymore. Like, this was like, that was how I was getting my promotion. Anyways, I'm doing too much talking here. T- tell me if you see it differently or give me any examples or what do, what do you think here?
1: Um, I, I don't see it differently. I see it I see it exactly the way you see it. I think though the challenge can be how, how to have the voice in the who is the voice in the room during the deal negotiation just think about the cast of characters who are in at the inception of the deal right i would love that at a certain point somebody presses the pause button and says okay we think we've got the numbers broadly aligned right now let's get in some folks who can talk to us about culture and and try to again just spot the pitfalls i've seen cultural audits done between companies who were thinking of merging or an acquirer thinking of acquiring. And it's all about this beautiful culture they're going to create on the far end of this deal. I'm not interested in that. I want to know what's going to go wrong. What do you do that really jars with what we do? How do you describe your high potential employees and how does that jar with whatever is going on in this company? Um, what do you think about hybrid working? I mean, that has to be massive these days in a, in a deal negotiation. Um, and by the way, I would say the same thing about empathy being required to make a successful workplace culture from a hybrid perspective these days um, as well, right? Similar situation, you've got, you called it the people who are like earning the fees and the big bonuses and everything, but it's the same when we're looking at a group of people who are projecting onto a much larger workforce, how they feel about certain things. And one of those is working in an office, which not everybody wants to do, but certainly studies have shown that the most senior ranks wanna get back in the office because they're Mm -hmm. used to being adored and having people float by their doorway, looking to get a hello. Um, Understanding what makes individuals tick through empathy is the way to get the, mo- the best out of everybody, right? I think that is largely accepted as a, a principle and certainly leadership, schooling and thinking in more recent years have dialed up EQ to be essential. Our CEO who's been in, he will have been in two years in September. Uh, he lists four key criteria. You may have seen him on a video with his four key criteria for his hires, um, but one of those is EQ and, it, and he doesn't believe you can. He believes you can refine it, but possibly not create it in somebody that doesn't have it. And so, again, just thinking about who is it that's in charge of your policies and programs, but in an M and A context, who's in the deal room, who has a high EQ quotient, and isn't afraid to take the conversation there, and just get going some slightly more difficult human problems and challenges uh, through, and having discussion about those upfront. I, 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 I'm I not in the deal room uh, often, but I haven't seen that done too regularly. You tell me, Jess, if I'm off base there.
2: No, I think I think it's super interesting. And I, I guess I've thought so often, like I've never met an executive who thought their merger was going to go bad. And yet <laughs> when you look at the stats, like 88% of time they would have been better to leave the cash in the account. 88. Like when you think about the arrogance of like, well, 88% of people at my level screw this up, but I'm sure if I just do what we've always done, it'll be fine. Like what, what is going on there? And like, I think about, th- this has been a super interesting conversation to me to think of like the value of like going into the, everything a- around a merger or an acquisition with more humility of like, okay, 88% of the standard, pr- you know, standard practices turn on 88% failure rate, right? Where this was not synergistic. You know, if the, if if the pass-fail is the combination is worth more than the separate parts, 88% failure. So it, it, logic would suggest that we need to do something different, right? And so like, uh, you know, approaching things from this deep down level of like, I think about all the bean counters and the Excel spreadsheets that go on in M&A. And there's uh-huh. this massive assumption that there's, there's these massive assumptions of what you can get the humans to do. When you change their environment and anyways that's my big takeaway today spencer and this didn't necessarily mean to be an m a (laughs) interview today Uh, what what else do we want to talk about today i'll send it over to you for the next few
0: questions well i'm so glad it went in this direction um Lisa, I understand that I think in 2021, you were the architect of a new program at Yahoo, Work at Yahoo, where this was a program designed to infuse more flexibility into the workforce, to allow employees to uh, strike a better work-life balance. I'm interested to learn um, how that program came to be, the conversations that you had uh, to create the successful program, and now post pandemic, where is this program going? And have the conversations changed, or have they stayed the same? Can you speak to that?
1: Sure. Um, this this became ultimately a thesis that I wrote <laughs> over. So, uh, I, as you can imagine, the beginning of the pandemic. Anybody in a senior HR role, I mean, our lives just turned upside down you know, whatever it was, March 13th, everybody went home and worked at home. Um, At that time, we were part of Verizon. So we benefited from a daily uh, crisis management call, effectively, with Verizon's entire engine, which was phenomenal and and really got us through uh, the first part of the pandemic. But everybody was working at home and there was not really much discussion during 2020 about going back in the office. I'm sure you can remember that too. But at a certain point when and how and in some cases if we would go back to the office became a topic of conversation and journalists started to write about the benefits of both and a combination and different sectors seemed to be moving in different directions you know few tech companies came out straight away we're going to stay remote forever this is it we're giving up our real estate uh others much more bullish about being in the office full time we at that point in 2021 were in that between Verizon and Apollo state of affairs. And certainly Verizon, when we were part of that larger organization, think about Verizon is a huge uh, organization where a lot of people cannot work from home. Technicians going into houses, fixing lines, working in stores. uh, They had to go to work in an office and therefore Verizon wasn't in a position to really embrace hybrid working the way that we wanted to as the smaller little media company within Verizon. Fortuitously, in that context, we were sold from Verizon to, to a PE firm, and we suddenly had this blank page that we could do whatever we wanted when it came to hybrid. It was the, it was the absolute changeover, it was the moment of the changeover between the two CEOs also. The previous CEO had a philosophy that we should be, as early as possible, at least three days required in the office. And that's the way he had started to talk to the leadership team. And that's what he was starting to ask me and the HR leaders to roll out into the organization. I had a fundamental reaction against this. I just thought this is going to be disaster for everybody. Um, People will walk. At this time, we were still edging towards that great resignation as well. So we weren't in a situation where people were grateful to have a role yet people were choosing to to walk and taking you know great salaries to to move out of our company so in my mind we had to very quickly think about what is our what could be our USP going forward what could be our unique feature as an employer it's part of our proposition that other companies don't appear to be doing and I read and I read and I read and people were sending me 25 articles a day about this and that and benefits of both and drawbacks of both, but I just knew that retaining flexibility was going to be critical. And so in order to get my thoughts out onto paper, I did write a thesis. I'm not kidding. And um, it ultimately came down on um, with two, two key principles, has to be driven by business need, we do have some people fixing data set in fixing machines in data centers and they have to go to the data center. That's a business need and unfortunately for them, if they wanted to stay at home full time, they can't do that role. Personal preference though, after 18 months as it was there nearly it was going on for about 20, 21 months when we unveiled work at Yahoo. People had been working at home extremely success- successfully and giving us the feedback that they really appreciated being able to run their lives and manage their you know their personal necessities around work and we were entrusting them to do that and they felt they could be productive doing that and i was just fundamentally not prepared to move away from that without con- without a solid reason and nobody could give a reason as to why it would be better if we went back in the office so we ran at, we ran with the work at yahoo which essentially again was business need first and then personal preference and fusing those together and wrapping around that a huge layer of communication you have to speak to your manager and you can't just decide what you want to do you have to be in tandem with your manager and in alignment with your manager if you say you want to go in the office five days a week we're not going to pay your travel if you've moved three or four hours away from an office so lots of different nuanced conversations arose you might think it was simple to just say, stay as you are, but actually some people did want to go to the office. So what does that mean? now? We've hired them remotely. Can they expense their travel? You know, every single feature of the working relationship had to be drilled down and, and detailed out. Where are we now? That was September, that was October actually 2021 that we unveiled that. It was one month after the new CEO arrived and he arrived saying, I'm a massive proponent of flexible working. Let's do this thing trust you you've written this paper it's great let's go with it that i would say has set yahoo up extremely well for the better part of 18 months we, we were known as somewhere that you could go and work if you were an engineer you could be in a garage in utah or you could be anywhere you wanted for that matter if we said it was okay um, again, some, some roles had to be done on-site and you would know that if you were being hired into that role or if you were being promoted into that role. So it's, again, lots of open communication. We've seen in engagement surveys, we do them twice a year. We've seen in the last two surveys that there is that inevi- inevitable fatigue creeping in um, about being at home and people do want to come together, but for social reasons. So on the one hand, we've got employees wanting to come back together to see colleagues, meet new colleagues, and almost recharge themselves. I like to think of it like a Tesla. You come in, you plug in, you have a day, you can go away again. You've got a full tank. You don't need to see them again for six months. On the other hand, with strategy, with with business strategy really being revamped under a set of new leaders, under this new CEO, there are some groups that want to be more deliberate about being in the office to actually do the work. And so we have a case right now where one or two of our leaders do want to say, hey, everybody, it's three days a week in the office. And what I'm counseling them on is strong encouragement, perfect, make it purposeful, organize leaders to be there, training sessions to be there, food to be there from time to time, great. Make it worth everybody's while so that you are creating a pull factor rather than pushing people in because that will push people away and remember we've also hired hundreds of people during the pandemic the last three years three plus years who don't live anywhere near an office so to go back to the culture side of things you can't have culture one which is urbanites who live near an office who you're now going to require to go in an office three days a week and the non-urbanites who either we hired remotely or who took The opportunity to move away and now they are kind of off the hook from having to be in and moreover leaders you have to lean into the fact that if you're going to be in the office you do have teams remote so you can't freeze them out you need to make sure that it's inclusive from a career development perspective and you're paying attention to those people who aren't in the room if you're all in your you know in your conference suite doing your product kickoff you're going to have people on the video and that is going to continue until the end of time. I honestly don't think that every business is going to go back in the office five days a week. So it's an ever green discussion. My role is to try to honestly not like to dim down any panic that people are feeling at a leadership level. If they, they feel that results, whether it's revenue or product development, isn't on track, they'll go straight to we have to get people in the office. This is how we fix it and i do i don't believe that that is the answer and i think it creates a lot more uh downstream challenges both operationally as well as culturally if you if you do do that now if there is a company where all their employees live in one city and they can all easily get to their office that's a whole different picture Um, again you've got to be super curating your strategy around your company. Um, but we are a dispersed company and we always have been. So the idea that we would suddenly go three or four days required in an office would be quite a, a U-turn on the history of, of both companies. Both companies and probably anybody who joined you in the last few years.
0: <laughs> so Lisa, <clears throat> excuse me, this foundational document, your your thesis, is this a public facing <laughs> document? Is this something that you've been <laughs> able to share out with your you know, colleagues and in other industries?
1: I have shared it, uh, I would say on a more informal basis with, yeah, colleagues and with obviously with our executive team at the time. Um, my husband keeps saying I should put it on the internet and maybe I will, but the longer it goes on, it feels kind of retro to to post it out there. I read the first few sentences of, of it the other day and, and it's sort of bizarre how long ago it was that we were ideating on this. Cause it, as I say, it's an, it's an evergreen discussion every single week. Even today. Uh, but but I, I have said it, yeah, in, in a few places.
0: Interesting. I think the role of uh, you know uh, people and talent leaders ha- has changed uh, dramatically as a result of uh, the pandemic, in that this topic that that we've been discussing, you know, work from home or or returning to the office, I get the sense that this is going to be an evergreen, uh, to use your term, evergreen topic. Are there any other like evergreen topics that have originated uh, because of the uh, pandemic? So if you look at your body of work, your portfolio of work pre and post pandemic, what, what are some of the things that um, are new to you that you think will be you know, in your scope of work for you personally, as well as for the profession going forward?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really great question. And and honestly, I haven't reflected too, too much in detail on what it is that's changed for us as a result of the pandemic. Um, I think for us, there's the added element, right, of being uh, sold away from Verizon at the same time. So when I'm looking at the body of work that my team and I are engaged in, it's a lot of workforce re-engineering um, again off the back of new ownership and a new review let's say of what the business is doing and the various constituent components of the company today arguably that should have been done five six years ago um, but we're deep into that workforce re-engineering and therefore what my team has been has been focused on which is not dissimilar to a lot of the other tech companies, although they're coming at this, I believe, for different reasons and and arguably with a different strategy, is is workforce reductions, right? I mean, the pandemic was actually a super successful year for those people who were in the business of the internet because everybody started to use the internet. Um, Nowadays, let's just take Yahoo News as an example, there's news fatigue around the world, right, news is a challenge. Um, We unveiled a different approach to advertising technology in February, which meant focusing on one particular technology platform and sunsetting a couple of others or going in a different direction with a couple of others, which had workforce uh, implications. And so from a team perspective, my team has really been engaged in that business of, we talked about at the beginning of the call, dialing up empathy in leaders in tough personal situations Um, now that you talk about the lasting impact of the pandemic i think that does actually tie the theme being the pandemic shook everybody to the core no matter who you were it changed your reality right and for many of our employees um that came at a tremendous cost either from a health perspective, from a spouse or partner losing a job perspective. Um, And so I think what we tried to do at that time was look at our entire experience at Yahoo as an employee and think about how we could essentially do what we could do from an HR program perspective to enhance various aspects of people's existence, whether that was looking at the severance process and how we treated people on the way out, including support on the other side, or thinking about our benefits offering and recognizing that possibly there were gaps, that gaps in coverage and caregiver leave and things that we should probably close because there is just that added feature now that people are dealing with um, aspects of, of life post-pandemic that weren't present before. So just having that you know, constant review of what we do and making sure that it's fit for purpose and, and optimizing as best we can, given what we know our employees are going through. I think that would be probably another theme, albeit a slightly yeah. broader theme.
0: Uh, Jess, I have one more question, and then I want to uh, turn it to you. Lisa, as I understand it, there is a very robust and healthy ERG uh, uh program at Yahoo, um, have you seen in, you know, the, this, this dynamism that we've experienced because of the pandemic, um, you know, wanting a more empathetic culture, wanting a more flexible culture, that your ERG program has really satisfied that need for many of your employees?
1: That that second part to the question was was absolutely like dynamite, right? Yes, you have a program, is it delivering, right? Because sometimes these things can be a little uh performative. And um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of articles and feedback now that that, that is the case, that people feel almost used and abused internally when they're leading ERGs and they feel like a lone voice. Um, I think that like a lot of companies, I think we have more work to do in supporting our ERG leaders within a clear remit and mandate, right? And and I talk about this a lot with my colleague who's the head of Diversity and, and Inclusion and Culture. The evolution, of, I do believe that the evolution of the ERG is is really critical and can add tremendous value. I think what sometimes happens is The people representing whatever that constituent group is are under immense pressure um, and their managers don't really understand how to support them. Um, And this is a common theme and we rotate the leads for our ERGs every couple of years. But this is constant feedback is my manager doesn't understand what I do. They, They use it against me and say that I'm not doing my job adequately enough because I'm leaning so far into the ERG work, but I do not, I don't think I can imagine the pressure our ERG leads were under during the pandemic on every level. People look to them in a way like they do some of my team as, you know, grievance counselors and social workers and human rights activists and, you know, you name it, roles for which they weren't trained. Um, so this year we brought all the ERG leads together a few months before the summer in Baltimore and gave them some leadership training and coaching. And also starting with kind of looking inwards to themselves and, and really how they wanted to be seen as, as a leader of this group together with a component that was about building a strategy and building an executionable strategy, because I think sometimes the pressure is the ERG population and that can vary in size and um volume depending on which group it is the lead is under tremendous pressure to get things done for that group some of those things do not belong within an accountability set of an erg lead they are not going to be able to do some of the things that sometimes i feel they're under pressure to accept that they will try and do Um, and that's where of course the support from leadership and the support from managers is is super critical because then they can build some guardrails, but also move forward with a plan that it is actually going to be executionable. Um, so I would say it's a, mixed, it's a mixed bag of outcomes, to be totally honest, and I don't think we've cracked it yet, but we do have a really super active nine ERGs actually across the company um, that, that I think um, will continue to be present within the organization, but in a way we just need to find more effective ways to support them um, to build their strategies and, and, follow through on those.
0: So insightful. Thank you. Jess, any, uh, uh, you know, parting thoughts or a question? No. Uh,
2: okay. First, um, what does ERG stand for, for everyone who doesn't know the acronym? Second, where do people find the careers on the Yahoo website? Cause they want to come work for you. And third, how do people connect with you online? Is it LinkedIn or where's best?
1: Uh, yeah, let's do it in reverse order. LinkedIn is best. Uh, I actually, I'm a 50 plus year old lady. So even though I am at Yahoo, I do not partake in social media. I'll leave that to my kids. Um, Yahoo Inc. Uh, is where you will go to find the careers page. And uh, yes, we have a number of open roles we're hiring. And if you don't see a job there that is of interest or there's something else you want to do or talk to us about, yeah, LinkedIn is where to find me. ERG stands for Employee Resource Group. (laughs) That's like a (laughs) trivia question. I hope I got it right.
2: (laughs) Um, Well, thanks for doing this. This has been so much fun.
1: You're welcome. It's been great talking to you.
2: Thanks, Lisa.